So with everything going on in Israel, I've been asked by a number of people in the last week what I think about in terms of how what's going on there might or might not be connected to end times. If you've studied end times much, you know that the nation of Israel is obviously at the center of eschatology. And so it's interesting that today we come in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we come to Jesus' words regarding end times. This is really Mark chapter 13, is Jesus' outline of the tribulation especially, but also his second coming. And so I want you to open your Bible up to Mark chapter 13 and grab in your bulletin your outline. It is a very detailed outline, front and back. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And this is going to be a 30,000-foot flyover of end times. If you will remember when I announced this a few months ago, uh, in the future we're going to do a detailed study of Daniel and Revelation. So you're going to get all the end times you want in the months to come. Today's just an introduction to whet your appetite a bit. But uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 13. Follow along there on your outline. First, let's take a look at number one on your outline, the question. The question that really prompts Jesus to then give an overview of the tribulation period. Mark chapter 13, first notice verse 1. John Mark tells us, as he, Jesus, was going out of the temple. So let's pause right here and remember that for the last several weeks, we saw Jesus' question and answer session with the religious leaders. They had all kinds of questions for him. And then last week, we saw a question he had for them. There was this conflict back and forth, and all of this was taking place there in the temple. But now, Mark chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus is leaving the temple, and he crosses the area known on the east side of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. This is why Mark 13, Matthew 24, they're called the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. But notice what starts this discussion, continuing there in verse 1, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, or look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Here, noticing and commenting on the huge temple there in Jerusalem and the surrounding buildings. But verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now you have to understand here the shock of Jesus' statement. The temple rebuilt by Herod was a massive structure. And it would have been a complete shock to Jesus' disciples for him to say that it's going to be destroyed and indeed not one stone will be left upon another. This would have been a shocking statement. And so it prompts Jesus' disciples to begin asking him some follow-up questions. Notice verses 3 and 4. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives... So now they've completely moved from Jerusalem east to the Mount of Olives. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, 
Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? So notice they asked the question of when. When is this going to happen? And what will be the sign that that's going to happen? Now I want you to flip over to Matthew 24 for just a moment. Matthew 24 is a parallel passage and in it, verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3, we get a little bit more detail specifically what the disciples asked in that particular moment. Matthew 24, verse 3 As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, and again, that's Peter, James, John, and Andrew, came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Do you notice the little bit more detail that Matthew gives us here? Here the disciples ask Jesus specifically, okay, when is this going to happen? And what's the sign, ultimately not just of the destruction of the temple, but ultimately the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, for the first century disciples, when they hear Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple, they immediately connect the destruction of the temple with end times. Now, we know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but that did not begin the details of what we're going to read about here in Mark chapter 13. So what's going on? Another question you could ask is, well, where's the church in all of this? Because the temple's destroyed in AD 70. Here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we're still waiting for the events that Jesus describes here in Mark 13, Matthew 24. The simple answer is, God has not yet revealed, at this point in the disciples' lives, God has not yet revealed this period we call the church age, the dispensation in which we live right now. And so when the disciples ask about what will ultimately be the tribulation, it would have made no sense to Jesus' disciples if Jesus said, well, listen, guys, actually there's going to be this event called the, the, the church age and then the rapture of the church and then the tribulation is going to begin. Like, that's all true from our perspective. The apostle Paul comes in later and reveals the mystery of the church age and of the rapture. But we have to understand this from their perspective, the church age and the rapture is not yet revealed. You following me? And so effectively what Jesus does here is he skips over the church age, the rapture, and he goes straight into the tribulation. Again, I know this might be a little confusing. If you're confused, just hang tight for a few more months. We're going to hit it when we come to Daniel and Revelation. Uh, but that's the question. It's a question about the destruction of the temple that's ultimately tied with the tribulation period. That's the question. Now let's take a look at the tribulation. This is number two on your outline, and you can see I broke it down into three major subsections. 
Jesus is going to describe the first half of the tribulation, then the turning point, and then the second half of the tribulation. Let's take a look at the first half first, Matthew 13, verses 5 through 8. Matthew 13, 5 through 8. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So again, to put this in context for you, if you put on your end times hat for just a moment, I believe what Jesus is describing here in these verses is the general conditions of what will take place in the first half of the tribulation. This is after the church age in which we are in right now, after the rapture, this is the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the first half of that tribulation period. Now, let's back up and ask the question first, what is the tribulation? If you're new to the church, if you've not studied in times before, you might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about, tribulation? There's this concept of the tribulation that's mentioned throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Daniel 9. It's often called, it's often called Jacob's trouble. It's this period of tremendous distress and persecution. I believe also, if you look forward to the book of Revelation, it's described in great detail in Revelation chapter 6. But take a look at how Jesus describes that period of time, that first three and a half years of the tribulation. Notice this. First of all, there's false Christs. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Second, there are wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7. Third, there's worldwide political instability. Verse 8, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Fourth, there's turmoil even within the world itself as there's famines and earthquakes. Again, that's verse 8. Now as you read what Jesus is describing here, many Bible scholars have said, well, at least there's wars and rumors of wars and political instability and famines and earthquakes happening today. And so this has led a lot of people to argue that even we're in the end times or they start setting predictions for when the rapture is going to happen. Uh, that, for the record, is not the view that I hold to. Um, I follow the teaching of Dr. Pentecost on this, who stood in this pulpit many years ago, who would reiterate that what Jesus is describing here is not events leading up to the rapture, 
but these are events that follow the rapture in the first half of the tribulation. Why? Because again, it would make no sense for Jesus' disciples here in the first century on the Mount of Olives to be talking about the rapture, the church age, or any of that when none of that information has yet to been revealed. Um, Now, I will say this. There are very brilliant men who could sign our doctrinal statement who would say, no, what Jesus is describing here is the events leading up to the rapture and following the rapture in the tribulation period. Lewis Berry Chafer held that view. Um, But I, I humbly disagree. I believe what Jesus, again, is describing here is that general conditions of the first half of the tribulation. And as bad as it all sounds... Notice again what Jesus says at the end of verse 8. He says, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. As bad as all of this sounds, it gets worse. And we see it beginning to get worse there towards the middle of the tribulation, this turning point described in verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, Once again, I'm going to reiterate this over and over again. I think Jesus is talking about those people who are alive during the tribulation period. And notice how he describes this midpoint, this turning point in the tribulation period. Notice there is physical and political persecution. Even religious persecution. Verse 9, they'll deliver you to the courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings. Notice there's betrayal within family units. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death, a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And we know elsewhere that there is, ultimately all of this hatred is centered upon the Jewish people, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. As we compare these verses with other passages in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, we learn that this turning point will ultimately take place because the Antichrist in the first half of the tribulation will have been in a peace, uh, a peace covenant with the nation of Israel. But at the midpoint, he'll break that covenant and ultimately turn against them. This is Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Overall, this is a terrible time of persecution. But I want you to notice there is a glimmer of hope in this time period as well. Notice again verse 13. 
Jesus says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now we need to be careful here. Because I don't believe Jesus is using the word saved in the same sense that we often use the word saved. The word saved could be translated as delivered. And I think that's exactly the way Jesus is using it here. In other words, the one who endures those seven years of tribulation, the one who manages to survive the tribulation period will be delivered, physically delivered. Again, Jesus is not here describing salvation by works. He's describing physical deliverance by enduring through the persecution of the tribulation. So, in other words, not everyone will die. Also, we see in verse 10 that there will be some who are eternally saved. Notice Mark 13.10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. In the tribulation period, the gospel will be preached and people will believe in Jesus. In the book of Revelation, we read about the 144,000 Jews who will be worldwide evangelists telling people about the good news of Jesus and the hope that he offers to them, the forgiveness he offers to them. We're given just a glimpse of that bit of hope there in Mark 13, 10. The gospel will be preached to all the nations. Now starting in verse 14, we come to the absolute midpoint of the tribulation. The ultimate turning point, the abomination that causes desolation, notice verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation... Standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before, the abomination that causes desolation. This is mentioned in the book of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, this abomination of desolation describes an event that desolates and desecrates the temple. There will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. And at the midpoint, what I believe is being described here is that the Antichrist, at the midpoint of the tribulation, will declare himself to be God. He will put an idol, an image of himself in the temple and force everyone to worship him. And this abomination of the temple, this desolation of the temple will signal such a clear event that Jesus, notice the end of verse 14, tells the Jews alive then in the tribulation to run, to flee to the mountains. Notice verses 15 through 18. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. And woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that it may not happen in the winter. Again, Jesus is here speaking to those Jews alive in the tribulation. And he says, listen, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the image, the idol put in the temple, run, get out of here as quickly as you can. 
flee to the mountains, find whatever place of refuge you can find, and how sad it will be for pregnant women, for women nursing babies, or God forbid if it's winter and it's hard to travel, because your fleeing will be much more difficult. Jesus issues this warning because as we transition to the second half of the tribulation, the wrath, the persecution of that second half of the tribulation simply cannot be imagined. And so he says, run for your lives. Starting in verse 19, we come to the second half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, sometimes called the Great Tribulation. This is where things move from really bad to even worse. Notice verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation, notice this, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now. And never will. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus here describing the second half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. He says, For that time of tribulation, such as has not occurred from the beginning until now. And never will. That last three and a half years of the tribulation, in other words, will be the worst time any human beings have ever experienced. It will be the worst time that the Jews have ever experienced. And think about, in their history, all that they had already endured. Exile. By the Assyrians, exile by the Babylonians, shortly after Jesus' words, being conquered by the Romans. In modern history, the Holocaust of Nazi Germany, and even the headlines we see today of children and women being kidnapped held hostage, murdered in cold blood, babies shot in their strollers and car seats. Jesus says here in verse 19, the tribulation, the future tribulation, will be worse than they've ever seen. It will be so bad that notice verse 20, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. This, by the way, does not mean that there will be less than 24 hours in a day. What Jesus is saying here is that the tribulation period, those seven years or the last three and a half of the great tribulation, it will ultimately come to an end. 
There will be an end to this period of tribulation. If there wasn't an end to the tribulation, then no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the chosen there in the tribulation period, God will bring it to an end. And what will bring it to an end? The second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ and only the second coming of Christ is what will bring that tribulation period to an end. But before we get to the tribulation period, Jesus has another warning. Notice verses 21 through 23. Because there will be those looking for the second coming of Christ, verse 21 says, If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Again, because there will be people all over the earth looking for the second coming of Christ in one final act of deception, Satan will rise up false Christs and false prophets in order to lead people astray. But take heed, verse 23. Jesus says, I've told you everything in advance. Here's the blueprint for end times. And he and only he, Jesus, will bring an end to this horror. Let's take a look at number three on your outline. The second coming. Mark chapter 13, notice verses 24 through 26. But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I want you to close your eyes, if you would, for just a moment and imagine what Jesus is describing here. Notice the complete darkness in verses 24 and 25. After the tribulation, in those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light or reflect the light of the sun. The stars will fall from the heavens. Complete darkness. But verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There in the midst of the complete darkness, there will be a sudden and glorious, tremendous light of God that disperses the darkness. It will literally be impossible to miss. As the glory of God in the second coming of Christ is seen. By the way, Revelation 19.14 says, we, the church, will be with him. Zechariah 14.4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the very place that he's telling his disciples these words in Mark 13, Matthew 24. And here in a moment, the glory of God will disperse the darkness. Then verse 27, then he will send forth the angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. 
At the second coming, Jesus will send his angels to gather his elect, his chosen ones from Israel. This involves the ingathering of believers during the tribulation. People will again come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation. This also includes the resurrection of the Old Testament saints so that they too will share in Messiah's kingdom. And what a great and glorious day this will be. This is how Jesus describes the end times. This is his blueprint for the end. But he's not done. He also has application to offer. Let's take a look at number four on your outline there on the backside of your handout. Having laid out a basic timeline of his return, Jesus lays out a few lessons These lessons, keep in mind, are specifically for those who are alive in the tribulation period. That's not us. This isn't the tribulation. But Jesus' application for those in the tribulation, I think, also apply to us today as we look forward to the rapture of the church. Let's take a look. The first lesson is be watching. Be watching. Notice verses 28 and 29. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Here Jesus gives an example of a fig tree. He says, you know that when you see on a fig tree that its branches are tender, it's putting forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And so you, he says, you who are alive during the tribulation, when you see these events here described in Mark 13 happening, know that he is near, right at the door, referring to his second coming. Now, once again, for you and I, what we're awaiting is the rapture. That moment in the twinkling of an eye when we will meet the Lord in the air. And we too should be watching. We too should be watching. And we should be ready. That's the second lesson. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is Jesus' guarantee, in other words, that what he is saying is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He says there in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, again, be careful here that this generation is not referring to us here in 2023. The this generation is the generation of people alive during the tribulation period. That generation will be composed of Jews and Gentiles who were alive at the rapture but not taken up because they didn't know Jesus. They endure the tribulation and now they're awaiting the end. They're to be watching and they're to be ready Be ready. Notice verses 32 through 37. 
He says, but of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed. Keep on the alert. In other words, be ready. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. Notice the repetition. Be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all. Be on the alert. Be on the alert, Jesus says. Even though there will be signs leading up to a second coming. That's what Mark 13 is about. Even though there will be signs, the precise moment of the Lord's second coming cannot be calculated. You could paraphrase what Jesus is saying here. Don't set dates. Don't make predictions. Just be ready. Be ready. Like I said, this applies to us as well as we await the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. And so we're to be ready. Don't set dates. Don't make predictions. But be ready. So this is a ton of information, a ton of interesting stuff. Again, we'll see it in much greater detail in the months to come as we go through Daniel and Revelation. But as we think about application, I want to offer to you just a few suggestions on how to take a study of the end times and apply it to our life today. Why is a study of the end times important and helpful for us today? Three ideas for you. Number one, I believe that a study of the end times gives us assurance about our future. A study of the end times gives us an assurance about our future. Again, if I'm right, then the next event on the end times calendar will be the rapture of the church, followed by the tribulation, which we see here described in Mark 13, followed by the second coming, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state, or new heavens and new earth. But uh, on the, at the very least, a study of the end times should give us an assurance about our future. In a split second, the game plan here described in Mark 13 could begin. The rapture of the church and then the tribulation starts. This could happen today. It could happen in a thousand years. We don't know. But a study of the end times should give us an assurance about our future. But you can only have that assurance if you know Jesus as your Savior. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven? That you will not face the wrath of God because Jesus took it upon himself for you? If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, I want to invite you right where you are, right where you're watching online, to put your faith in him. Number two, Studying the end times encourages godly living in the present. Studying the end times should encourage godly living in the present. 
in our age of darkness, we can't afford to doze off. We need to stay awake, keep our eyes open, our Bibles open, because again, we believe that at any moment, Jesus could come for his church, so we need to stay alert. We need to be ready. I want to caution you, by the way, against two errors that I see when it comes to end times. Error number one is date setting. Perhaps you remember the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Well, it didn't happen. Many well-intentioned Bible teachers have tried to set dates and make predictions, and thus far they're 100% wrong. So avoid the error of trying to make predictions and set dates. But I also want you to avoid the other error of apathy. Some people think, well, man, I'm not smart enough to figure all this out. This is too confusing. So you just throw your hands in the air and say, I give up on trying to study end times. But effectively, that's ripping many, many pages out of our Bible. God gave us this information to study it, to understand it, and to motivate us, to encourage us to live godly lives in the present, knowing what is to come. And part of living godly lives in the present, as we anticipate the end times, is studying end times, this is number three, studying end times encourages missions and evangelism while we wait. A study of the end times should encourage missions and evangelism while we wait, as we really come to grips with what this world will face during the tribulation period. Realizing that the rapture could happen at any moment, a study of the end times should fuel within us a vigorous involvement in missions and evangelism, sharing the gospel with people while we still have opportunity. So to bring it close to home, as we see what's going on in the Middle East, Let's read the Bible more than we do the headlines, not trying to set dates or make predictions, but let's stay on the alert and let it fuel our passion to share the gospel, understanding that the worst is yet to come. There on the backside of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider and your one thing for this week, the one thing I'd ask for you is to pray for Israel and to specifically pray for the salvation of Israelis and Palestinians to pray for their salvation for all those involved in this war in the Middle East so that God would somehow in some way use this terrible, terrible thing in order to bring more people to faith in Jesus. Here in Mark 13, we see that a study of the end times is about much more than just knowing how to draw an end times chart. But the study of an end times is the basis of our Christian hope. It's about much more than just escaping the things to come, but it also should encourage us to live for Jesus today. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you this morning with heavy hearts as we do read the headlines and see the news of the horrific things that are going on in Israel. Father, it grieves our heart as we know it grieves your heart. And Father, it's sobering to even imagine 
that after the rapture, during the tribulation, what will happen then is even worse than what's happening now. And so, Father, as we come to terms with this, I pray that you would give us an assurance of our future. I pray that you would encourage us to godly living in the present. And I pray that you would create within us a deep desire and a passion to share the good news of Jesus with those who need to hear it. Father, thank you for the great hope we have in him, for the assurance of our salvation. Thank you that this world is not ultimately what it will be. And we ask and we pray along with Christians for nearly 2,000 years, come Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.